before that, let me invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Colossians. We'll be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 4. And remember last week we began to open up this passage, but we really didn't look at this passage. We started in Colossians 3, which is really the transitional point in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Paul has been dealing with doctrine, with the beliefs of how Christ, who is superior above all things, superior over creation, superior over the church, and he is the one who came and died for you and I so that we might be made blameless and holy in his sight. And if you're here this morning, saved, a miraculous thing has happened in your life. I was talking last week, a lady came up and she said, thank you for your testimony. She said, I didn't really have that kind of an experience. And of course, I was saved at the age of 14 and she said, I didn't have that experience. And I, and I told her and I thought to myself, whether you were saved at the age of 50, whether you were saved at the age of 14, or whether you were saved at the age of 5, it was still a miraculous salvation that took place. In fact, even the five-year-old might be even more miraculous because God keeps you from the stains and the hurts of sin that many of us had to go through. So if you got saved at an early age, don't ever think that that was not miraculous. And so Paul, dealing with the belief section in chapter 1 and 2, then starting in chapter 3, he begins with the behave section. How do we behave in light of that? Can you remember how he began? He began with talking about our placement, our position in Christ. We're risen with him, we're dead with him, and we will be glorified with him. And because of our placement in Christ, we ought to have new priorities in Christ. New value system. And we begin here last week, and I think Paul begins here last week, because what you value most is what you live for. And so before he begins all of the do's and don'ts, he says, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated. What's your values? Because when you value him above all things, then obedience becomes second nature. And that's where he goes, and he moves now into the section that we're looking at this morning, it's the section that Pastor Steve read. It is the section on prayer. And just take your eyes down, and we're just going to look at one verse. Look at chapter 4 and look at verse 2. And Paul, really ending his book with this, says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Father, for the songs that we have sang. I think of that last one, Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Father, I pray that you would allow your word to open up to our hearts, that, Father, we would be confronted with its truth, and that, Father, it would battle our unbelief, and that, Father, our faith would grow as we look at you. We love you. 
We praise you. And Father, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Four years ago, back in 2016 in February, I had the privilege of traveling to India where I was speaking at a college and a pastor's conference. Uh, when we had arrived there in India and I was with the pastor of that church, I noticed on the gate there was a huge red mark, a red uh, numbering in India. And he began to tell me, he said, that red mark there is because the government is watching us. And he began to say, if, if we are found evangelizing anybody, if we are found uh, proselytizing, giving the gospel to anyone, it is a minimum of seven years in prison. As we held this pastor's conference, uh, probably what hit me the hardest was all of the people that came to that, and many of these believers were uh, extremely persecuted for their faith. Uh, many of the people had been beaten. There was one pastor there who had his teeth missing in front because he was beaten by a mob uh, with a club. Uh, one of the men had been dragged behind a car to try to kill him. Uh, many of their homes have been burned. Their churches have been burned. And yet, many people in this community were coming to Christ, were coming to salvation. As I met with these believers, there was such peace and joy. Uh, there was just a gladness that they had. And when the word went forth, uh, the people readily responded to it. And I remember toward the end of the 10 days when I was there, I was sitting down uh, with three of the pastors and I was just marveling, giving some of my observations of what I have seen and asking the question, what's happening? Why does there seem in the midst of, of great persecution, why do your people seem to just in the midst of that, be going forth, facing it with boldness. And their simple answer to me was because the people spend much time in prayer. He said every week they give hours upon hours in prayer. He said on most Saturdays they commit whole days to fasting and prayer. And he says, I believe the secret to all that God is doing is because we've given ourselves to prayer and there's power with that. And this is really, as we come to the end of Colossians, this is really what Paul is calling us to do. He's calling all of us to engage in the gospel ministry. And how do you engage? Well, there's two battlefronts to this engagement. The first one in verses 2 through 4 is a call to prayer. And then verses 5 through 6 is a call to witness. And in essence, and this is the title of the message, in essence what Paul is saying is talk to God about people and then talk to people about God. 
Now, Paul calls us to engage. And my simple outline in which I hang this outline on uh, really is just four words. Let me give them to you in case I forget. It is the word devote. It is the word duty. It is the word delight. And it is the word door. And so first of all, Paul calls us to devote ourselves in prayer. Look at verse 2. Paul says this, Continue in prayer. Now, those words, continue in prayer, is actually two Greek words. It actually can be translated this way, be courageously persistent in prayer. Don't be weak. Be courageous and press on. That's literally what the words mean. So Paul is saying be courageously persistent when we pray. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Why does Paul need to tell us to be courageously persistent? I want you to think with me through your own experience with prayer. How many of you have ever heard a message or read a book on prayer? Probably most of you, right? How many of you, after reading or hearing that message, determined in your heart that you were going to start praying? And so you make this commitment, I'm going to start praying, and maybe the first day goes well, and so then you come into the second day, and as you begin to pray, you begin to find a struggle. What begins to happen? You begin to find your mind wandering in different places. Uh, for me, my mind begins to wander all the time in maybe things I need to be doing, maybe in the message I need to be preparing. And it's always amazing that whenever I come to pray, there's always these thoughts of things that need to be done. And so you struggle in prayer. You battle to stay focused. Your mind continually wanders. You seem to be lost for words, or you seem to find yourself saying the same thing over and over. And at the end of that prayer time, you feel as if nothing was accomplished. And you feel as if your prayers went no higher than the ceiling. You ever felt that way? And after a while, what tends to happen? We quit praying. We get discouraged, and so the discouragement in our weakness in prayer leads to our ceasing in prayer or maybe just dabbling in it once in a while. And so when we feel at our weakest, Paul tells us to courageously press on. Don't quit. We'll talk about this in a moment, why we can be courageous. So Paul says we are to be courageously persistent in prayer, pressing on in it. 
And now what he does, he continues to give us two ways in which we do this. How can we be courageously persistent? Look at the next word, verse 2 again. Continue in prayer, and what's the next word? And watch, or maybe your translation is being alert in it. And what I have in my Bible there is the word duty. And the reason that is is because that word watch, that word uh, uh, be watchful or alert is the imagery of a guard who is on duty. And remember, back in those ancient cities, which most of them would have walls, uh, there would be guards or watchmen. They would have to keep an eye out for impending danger. And they would walk those walls, and then there was other places, maybe in a fort somewhere, trees, where there would be lookouts. And the greatest crime that these guards could commit was to fall asleep on the job. And the reason that this was the greatest crime was because an entire city or village depended on the vigilance of that guard. We don't really know what that's like so much. We saw a little bit of this when we lived down in South Africa, uh, when we lived right next to the Indian Ocean with the lifeguards. Um, and during the holiday seasons, which was the month of December, the whole country would shut down, and everyone would come up into our area. Uh, we would go from about 20,000 just in our area to almost 200,000 in our area and then other areas even more. And so it would just come and we'd watch the lifeguards out there as people were swimming. And the lifeguard would be vigilantly alert and watching not just the swimmers, but they'd be watching which way the tides and the currents were moving. And every so often, the lifeguards would quickly run down there and they would take the two posts that were uh, where the people could swim and they would move those posts in accordance to where the tide and the currents were doing. And that would indicate that that was where the safety was that you could swim. But they were constantly on alert. And this is what Paul is telling us, is that we need to constantly be alert constantly be awake. Now, there is a passage that uses this, and I want you just to turn there for a moment because I think it really helps us to see what Paul is saying here. Go over to Mark, and just keep your fingers there in Colossians. Go over to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14 And look at verse 32 just for a moment. This is when they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion. You remember where Christ is going to pray, verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit you here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and begin to be sore amazed and very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry you here and look at this word. And watch. Same exact word that Paul is using in Colossians 
So he goes on and watch. Verse 35. He went forward a little, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and he findeth them sleeping. And he saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray. Why? Lest you enter into temptation, the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. So he tells his disciples to watch. His disciples fall asleep. Jesus wakes them and says, could you not watch and pray for one hour? And then he makes that statement. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. You see, Jesus does something here. Jesus uses their physical sleepiness to reveal a greater problem, which was their spiritual sleepiness. And both are used with this word watch. It is true, you cannot pray when you're physically tired, right? You ever got down and said, I'm going to pray, only to find yourself nodding off? Just, this is bonus. One of the best things I've learned to do is walk when I pray. You ever come by here, sometimes you'll see me walking, and you'll think, boy, that guy's weird. He's talking to himself. No, it's because of this problem. So Jesus says your physical sleepiness is a greater problem of your spiritual sleepiness because they lack the spiritual discernment to see what was happening around them and the dangers that surrounded them. They lack to see the dangers that surrounded them and what was happening around them. What was about to happen? Jesus was about ready to die. Jesus had already said, the shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will scatter. And so spiritual discernment, I think the idea then when we come with alertness is a spiritual discernment as you pray. What's going on? What's happening in your life? What's happening in your children's life? What's happening in the world around you? What is God doing? I think so many times we miss the opportunities that God has given us because we don't have spiritual discernment. And so when you come in prayer, you're alert. You're alert to the dangers of your own temptations. You're alert to the dangers of your loved ones. You're alert to the dangers of the enemy that's out there. And you're vigilantly praying to God. And so Paul says, be devoted in prayer, be courageously persistent. How? Be on duty, be alert. And then he says, be delightful in it. Look at verse 2 again, back in chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says this, continue in prayer and watch in the same 
with thanksgiving. And so this is delight. Now it's interesting that in almost every single chapter of Colossians, the word thankfulness is used. Let me just show you the first. Go back over to chapter 1 very quickly. And this is how Paul begins his letter. Starting in verse 9, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. He begins with prayer, he ends with prayer. And to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And if you're filled with his knowledge and wisdom and understanding, what happens? Verse 10, you walk worthy of the Lord. What does that worthy walk look like? Being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience, long-suffering with joyfulness. And then verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father. So walking in God's will is a believer being thankful for what God has done. What has he done? He has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now let me ask you something. If you were just to begin your prayer meditating on that, what do you think would happen? What has God done for you? I'm taking a class right now, and one of the books I had to read dealt with sin. And the author, in his beginning on dealing with sin, says we don't realize how sinful we are, and there is no hope within us at all outside of God and Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ do we have any hope? Are you thankful for that? Sometimes I have to remind myself of that because sometimes I think, oh, Lee, you can do this on your own. You're pretty good. You're pretty powerful. You can do nothing outside of Christ. So what did he do? He redeemed you. He took you out of darkness into his light. He saved you. You're his child. And so when we come, one of the chief characteristics in the believer's life is thankfulness. It's one of the reasons when we give testimonies at a Sunday evening, right? The pastor, many times over the years I've heard him, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Paul says, when you come to pray, be thankful. Why? Why can we be thankful for what he's done? But I think also, when we're praying, we talked about those struggles. When we pray, our focus doesn't stop on our human weakness and struggles. It doesn't even stop on the request itself. But our focus rests on the one who has all authority and power to answer that prayer. 
You see, one of the reasons we can be courageous in prayer is because of the one we pray to and not because of ourselves. So that's why I think when you begin your prayer, it's important. Meditate on God. Meditate on the blessings that he has given you. What has he done? Ultimately, he has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And at his death, that great divide which separated God and man was destroyed. And now the invite comes for all of us to come into his presence through Jesus Christ into prayer. What great delight, right? We have the ability to come into the presence of God to a sovereign one who delights to answer prayers. And so Paul says, be courageously persistent. Be alert like a guard on duty. Be delightful when you come into his presence. And then lastly, and this is the word, it's the word door. Look at what he says. Paul then goes on to tell them what to pray about. Verse 3, he says this, With all, praying also for us. And what is his prayer? That God would open a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, what is Paul saying there? That God would give, and the word door there means opportunities. That God would give opportunities for the gospel to be shared. And we'll talk more about this next week, but there are certain times when God opens up the hearts of people and the opportunities then are there to share the gospel. That's what Paul is praying for. That God would give opportunities to share the gospel for which I'm also in bonds. And then verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. What's he saying there? Pray for opportunities, but also pray for the right words to say. What did Paul understand? Paul understood that the opportunities to share the gospel, the ability to clearly speak the words of the gospel, and the power to see people accept the gospel ultimately comes from whom? God. That's why he says, pray for us that God would open. You see, the power to see lives changed is prayer. Paul understood that the human key that opens up the door of God's blessing and power is us praying. That's why William Copper said many years ago, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest believer on his knees. I want to close this section just with a story. A story that happened back in the 1850s. It's called the Great Revival, the Prayer Revival. And if you were to enter into the 1800s, 
America was very prosperous, and they felt very little need to call upon God. Does that sound familiar today a little bit? But in the 1850s, a great